Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. From Farianelli, the 18th century castrato who brought down opera houses with his high seat, the recording of Johnny B. Good affixed to the Voyager spacecraft. Elena Passarello, in her book, Let Me Clear My Throat, dissects the whys and hows of popular voices. There are murders of punk rock crows, impressionists, and rebel yells. Howard Dean's politically fatal scream, Marlon Brando's Stella, and a stock film yop that's made cameos in movies from A Star is Born to Spaceballs. The voice's thoughts incarnating instrument and Elena Passarello's essays are deconstruction of the ways the sounds we make both express and shape who we are. Elena Passarello is an actor and writer originally from Charleston, South Carolina. She studied nonfiction at the University of Pittsburgh, University of Iowa. Her essays have appeared in many magazines and... Uh, She has appeared on stage, appearing in several regional theaters. Uh, She is currently assistant professor of English at Oregon State University, and she'll be making a couple of appearances in Utah. The first of those is on Thursday as part of the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival and Southern Utah University's The Art of Literature series. That is on the Southern Utah University campus in Cedar City on Thursday, 1130 a.m. in the... uh, Sterling Church Auditorium and the Student Center there at SUU. And then Leda Passarella will be at Brigham Young University on Friday at noon and the uh, as part of the English reading series. Leda Passarello, a uh, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. I want to start with uh, with Tom Maliazzi. You've, you tweeted recently on, on his, his passing. I guess he, he was uh-huh. a, a big influence growing up, as he was uh, for many of us. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he, uh, that's right. Um, you know, car talk is sort of a great NPR staple. I'm of the perfect age. I think it started in 1987, which is, uh, you know, right in the middle of my youth when you're sort of subject to whatever your parents are listening to in the car. And it was just, it's such a joy to hear someone laugh like that every Saturday. Do you remember? He just so, he had the most delighted response to the things that people would, uh, when people called in that he would say and to what his brother said. It's just this warm, gigantic, perfect, delighted laugh. Uh, I'll never, ever forget it. I think, th- I think that's what we remember, isn't it? it- it's his laugh. Oh, it's yeah. perfect. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of wit. He was kind of mischievous. He'd, he'd, yeah. he'd, <laughs> he'd try to prod people into saying things, but, but I think it is the, the laugh. And that interplay with the, with the two brothers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, what you know, uh, um, his voice was just a little kind of lighter and, and sort of fuller than his brother's. His brother had has that sharper, sort of more pointed, uh, kind of a, a little tighter voice. And then there was just this kind of Santa Claus booming behind them. Yeah. And, and, of course, you know, when you're growing up in Gwinnett County, South Carolina, you don't hear a lot of Boston accents. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, so, <laughs> so it was also a great introduction for me to hear the, one of the best accents in America, as far as I'm concerned. And there's there's a delight in contrast as well, isn't it? If, if it had just been Tom himself, it would have been delightful. But the contrast with 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 uh, Tom and Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a true a true pair, a true perfect yeah. vocal pair. Well, if if uh, you'd like to uh, comment on on Tom uh, Maliazzi's passing, we do have a, a picture of Tom and Ray up on our Facebook page, and uh, you can comment there. We we hope that you will. Uh, it's a loss for for public radio. Uh, Utah Public Radio is the Facebook page. By the way, if you'd like to comment on this uh, conversation, hope you will. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. We're on uh, email, upraxcess at gmail.com. And you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. So uh, let, me, let me start uh, with, with how this book came about. How did you get interested in, in vocal expression and, uh, 
and what's behind that? Uh, well, uh, I'm sort of coming to writing as a, a somewhat second career. And before I went to grad school and tried to put a book together uh, in creative writing, I worked as an actor and a voiceover performer for about 10 years. And, uh, you know, your job when you're an actor, even when you're not working, is to pay very close attention to your voice and to the voices around you. Uh, uh, and then I guess when I once I went to school, I realized that that was this sort of entry point for how I saw the world. Um, whenever I would try to write about anything, including uh, an animal or, you know, a non-human subject, the way that I would want to sort of hook in or begin speaking about that subject was through their voice. Um, and, uh, you know, the sort of write what you know thing is true. I think I just sort of always had that as my understanding because of my uh, earlier profession and uh, for personal reasons too. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I'm not necessarily what you would call a lady soprano, so I've always been conscious about the sort of depth of my own voice and yeah. how anomalous that was. And I used to have a, a southern accent until I went to college in the East and people, you know, made me very aware of the fact that I talk different from everybody else. So for those reasons, I think um, it sort of heightened my awareness, and uh, that was sort of where I naturally gravitated to when I wanted to put a long-term project together. You, you consciously set out to change your accent, or just this just happened? I think, I, I mean, I, 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 I never thought that I had a southern accent. I knew people growing up in Georgia and South Carolina that I thought really did, like a lot of people's parents. And then when I went to Pittsburgh, which is where I got my undergraduate degree, um, people told me that I talked funny. And I had never, I, you know, I had that sort of medium southern accent, just a few vocal changes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I immediately uh, became really aware of it. Uh, and uh, now I don't have it anymore, and I miss it. I, mean, I think uh, one of the saddest things about the 21st century is so many of us no longer have regional accents. Yeah, I think part of that is, is television. They're, you know, all, all the anchors had a Midwestern accent, I guess. And, That's right, the St. Louis standard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you say you 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 were conscious of uh, of how your voice sits. I guess it sits a little lower, which, which can be uh -huh. an advantage too, right? There's. But yeah, I, I think uh, when you work in voiceover, I think a lot of people look for that sort of deeper voice. But you know, when you're 13 and the phone rings and someone's like, "Hello, Mr. Passarello, mm -hmm. <laughs> is your wife home?" Yeah. It's a little, <laughs> it's a little more jarring. That could be a problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, you you were on stage, and you write in the book, and I I hadn't known this as in depth as as I encountered it in the book. Theatrical people are are really stressed out about their voices. They're, I mean, that's their stock and trade, and, and they really try to take care of the voice, try to pace the voice, and, and, and are nervous wrecks at times over the voice. Yeah, I, yeah it, it, it was really surprising to me, too. Uh, I'm not nearly as trained of a performer as some of the people that ended up being my colleagues. Uh, some people had extensive uh, vocal training from places like Carnegie Mellon or Stella Adler, and so you would think that they would be the kind you know they could just land anything because they're in, they were so in touch with their instrument but they come off stage every once in a while and say things like oh, I just I just can't find my voice tonight singers you know I, I do the same thing too I sort of ended up interacting with singers a lot in my old job and it just was so shocking to me that you could be a professional practitioner of the voice and it would still kind of seize up on you um, and there's a lot of theories as to why that happens uh, my favorite of which is that you know the voice is not really a body part. 
it's it's not something that I could point to. I mean, I point to my throat when I talk about my voice, but it's really this wonderful cocktail of, of a whole bunch of things that we as humans have evolved to use, right? It's our lungs, it's our digestive, digestive systems, um, and it's, of course, the, the two vocal cords that sort of lie behind our tongue. And um, squeezing that system together so that it works has only been a part of our world for a few million years. Lucy, the famous hominid, her hyoid bone was not far back enough in her throat to be able to use her voice in the ways that we do. So we're still getting the hang of it, which I think is so terrific. Um, and I think that's where even vocal performers sort of fall prey to uh, that newness. So you say that the 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 voice is actually not a not a body part. That's that's interesting. I said produce sound with your whole body. That's one thing, right? Absolutely. Um, but I guess you can point to your vocal cords, right? That that's that's the actual point where the sound happens. That's right. Yeah, but the uh, uh, the you know we stole the breath, which is sort of what fuels the cords. We stop and start the sounds that make speech using our glottis or epiglottis. Uh, uh, it's been a long time since I wrote this book. I don't remember which one it is, uh, you know, which uh, helps us sort of make sounds, um, the, uh, stop and start and do sort of the things in the back of our throat. And, of course, we use our teeth, which are mainly used for mastication uh, to help make sounds, and our tongue, uh, which is used for eating. We've pulled all this together and made speech and song, not to mention the diaphragm. Um, the feet, the back, all these things are a part of every single thing that I say to every single person. Hmm. Uh, so I guess we're we're a bit misdirected when we when we point directly, you know, to the vocal cords. That's where the engine is, I guess. That's I where, guess you know, yeah. that's where the the bow hits the string. Right. <laughs> I'm thinking of a passage in your book where um, you're talking about Enrico Caruso, the great tenor, oh. and you talk about sacrifice for for the voice, and and Caruso apparently, you know, overused it and sang himself to death, you know, in a certain sense. But there, there's a scene where Helen Keller. Um, is investigating, you know, famously deaf and, and blind, is investigating his voice. Have I got that right? It was it was it was Caruso. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and actually he, sticks her finger, I guess, and he's I guess he allows her to sticks her, her finger, you know, sort of into his mouth. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a pretty bombastic picture when you look at it. Um, you can you can sort of hear the bombast of his voice uh, in uh, when you see Helen Keller with her hand in. Caruso's mouth and he's singing and just the vibrations of uh, what he's doing just uh, are obviously sort of resonating for her. It's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful picture. The, the story of Caruso is, is so exciting and so brilliant and I didn't know it before I began the book. Um, and so when I saw that picture, it was just gravy. <laughs> it was just a beautiful thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. You have a whole chapter on this. You, you talk about the castrati in the 18th century, and then you go on to talk about Caruso. That the, 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 the high C is, is not a natural part of the, the man's repertoire. It, you know, it fits better with the soprano, but, but a lot of sacrifice has been made over the year to hit that. Right. Usually when you say castrati, people sort of understand the specific sacrifice that those singers made in order to sing high. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, uh, the castrati of 18th century opera also, you know, devoted their lives uh, to making sort of pure and developed choir boy sounds forever. They moved into the church and studied with choirs, usually in Italy, and, you know, that was their life. And of course, uh, because they ended up gelding themselves so that they could 
uh, still sing high, their whole bodies changed. They became wonderfully tall and hairless, and uh, just a whole bunch of things sort of happened because they weren't allowed the gonadotropin that would sort of help them enter pubescence. So when I was writing, you know, all the essays in the book cover some moment in popular culture in which someone has used their voice and we've paid attention to it. And so I knew I wanted to write about the castrati because it's just this amazing historical moment of us wanting to hear a specific kind of sound in the church. Because of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, women were not singing in the church at the time. Um, And uh, so we manipulated the castrati in order to make that sound happen. And I was trying to figure out how to end it because, you know, castrati don't exist anymore. They're kind of a lost sound. Um, Although there are some kind of amazing sort of 21st century redos of that sound. Um, And I thought Caruso would be a perfect sort of pairing with the castrati. A, because Caruso was considered this very masculine tenor. You know, he sang over an octave lower than the castrati did, and the castrati had this beautiful feminized sort of, they played women quite a bit sound. Um, but then Caruso, who was this sort of macho man, the first singer, his, his you know, voice was so powerful that we could actually hear it on early recordings. And he was the first singer to ever go platinum. But at the same time, the way that he hit his C, which was an octave lower than the high C, the tenor's high C, the C5, um, just killed his body. You know, and you would people would sit in the Metropolitan Opera House and watch the veins pop out of his forehead. Those were like the expensive seats because we wanted to watch him wring his body into knots and make that sacrifice in order to get that C into the room. And if you think about it, uh, that's a beautiful gift for a performer to offer. Yeah, it's kind of an odd situation too, isn't it? You're 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 in the audience. You're you're. You're paying to see him hit this, and if, if he's not in good focal form, then you, uh, I guess you you have some body English trying to trying to help him to get there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and, uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know the very I guess it's his choice if if he wants to, you know, to, to ruin his voice and and to ruin his health that way. But in part, it's because we're we're there and we're wanting to see those those high wire acrobatics. Yeah, and there's I mean, there's physical man physical versions of that that we see all the time. I mean, every Monday night or every Sunday night or every Thursday night, it feels like football is on TV mm-hmm. <laughs> every night of the week. We're watching the same thing. We're watching uh, humans become superhuman uh, and pushing their bodies to the limits. Uh, and um, uh, and for some, there's something about that that I think is. Uh, noteworthy for us and gratifying and it happens as much with the physical production of sound as it does with the physical athleticism of ballet or football or something like that and, and i think of uh as i was reading about caruso and about the castrati as well uh, i was thinking about the great uh, tenor franco corelli just a mm. glorious voice but apparently from what i've read his career was cut short by stage fright he he oh. did, he had such a voice and it sounded so secure but uh, he, he at a certain point he wouldn't go out and he stopped his career because he just just couldn't do it just the nervousness yeah. wow yeah yeah stage fright is really fascinating i have an essay in the book on stage fright too uh uh you it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier um this this idea that you can you know create a perfect instrument out of your body but you can your brain you know once you get into your head it'll seize up on you and it won't do what you want it to do Hmm. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk more about this. We'll take up this idea of, of uh, this nervous energy, and uh, I'll uh, apply it to uh, the Stella 
And in fact, there are there is in New Orleans an annual Stella contest. Elena Passarello was the first female winner of that contest, and it, it's fascinating to, to hear her. I'll, I'll have her tell the story. Uh, more following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the American Festival Chorus, joined by the USU Symphony Orchestra with guest Congressman Chris Stewart, presenting a Veterans Day concert in honor of our servicemen and women. Tuesday, November 11th at 7 p.m. in the USU Concert Hall. Word-of-mouth gardening tips can be a bad idea. The age-old practice of passing along gardening tips and tricks is no guarantee you'll get a good result, and it might even do the opposite. This Thursday on the Zesty Garden is an interview with garden expert and author C.L. Fernari on her new book, Coffee for Roses, and 70 Other Misleading Myths About Backyard Gardening. We'll also hear a Petals and Prose essay about fall and wood gathering in Taos, New Mexico. That's the Zesty Garden each Thursday at 10 a.m. from Utah Public Radio. We're talking with Elena Passarello on the program today. Uh, she is uh, currently assistant professor of English at Oregon State University. She has appeared in uh, on the stage theater. She has done voiceover work as an actress there, and uh, she is originally from Charleston, South Carolina. Studied nonfiction at the University of Pittsburgh and University of Iowa. Her essays have appeared in Creative Nonfiction, Gulf Coast, Slate, Iowa Review, and uh, other places. And uh, she is uh, coming to Utah for a couple of appearances. Uh, first of those would be in Cedar City at uh, Southern Utah University as part of SUU's Art of Literature series in conjunction with Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. That is Thursday morning at 1130 uh, in the Sterling Church Auditorium, the student center there on the SUU campus. And then on Friday, she'll be reading at Brigham Young University uh, at noon as part of the English Department's reading series. You're welcome to join the conversation here on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Uh, you can join us uh, on email at upraxis at gmail.com, and you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. Uh, you can uh, join us on Facebook as well. By the way, there on the Facebook page, there's a picture of Tom and Ray Maliazzi. You can uh, give your car talk remembrances as well. Uh, so, Elena Passarello, um, you've done, before we get into your, your uh, winning the Stella contest and talking about uh, Marlon Brando, very interesting, uh, you've done voiceover work, apparently. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I did. I, uh, uh, n- nothing too super exciting, uh, but when I was living and working as an actor on the East Coast, I, uh, I often would um, sort of go into a sound booth and talk about the local car dealership or say crunchy into (laughs) into a (laughs) microphone. I did some narration of, uh, you know, just sort of radio commercials and a few uh, museum tours. I I think you can hear me in the central Pennsylvania Museum of Coal Mining, I think, where you can hear me. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, and it was great fun. Um, I always wanted, the dream was to... uh, I would love to have voiced cartoon characters, you know, or some kind of character voices, but I ended up kind of doing more just your basic um, regional voiceover work. Uh, and it was wonderful uh, and, and quite an education because of the way that you would be directed. I think it's the same, um, I mean, you know, a film actor knows how to get about eight different sort of hits out of a millimeter's worth of movement of their face, right? They sort of like, they, there's like 77 profiles for a great film actor. The, um, the voice actor can just change 
her voice within a hair's breadth and is directed to do so in the sound booth. Um, mm. So it really helped me be a lot more aware about infinitesimal ways that I could change uh, my voice. You talked uh, in between the essays. By the way, the book is Let Me Clear My Throat, uh, essays by Elena Passarello. Um, and in between the essays, you have some interstitial uh, elements. You, you interviewed some people, I think including some uh, uh, fairly famous voice, uh, an auctioneer, some uh, guy who did uh, impressions. Tell me about uh, those people. Well, the auctioneer is on a Geico commercial right now. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I saw him. And it's the only Geico commercial with an auctioneer on it, so it's hard to miss. He's, uh, he's, I think he won the 2011 or 2010 World Auctioneer Champions. He was a very nice gentleman from, uh, I believe, Ohio, Joseph Mast. This is the one where, uh, they, was... where they say uh, the auctioneers make bad uh, checkout clerks, right? Is that the... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's him. Okay, so that's him. All right. He was like running like a real estate agency or something and just sort of auctioneering in his as his second life. But I, I guess he's he's sort of uh, I don't know. I don't know if they called him and said and they were looking for an auctioneer just like I was and they found him or if he's you know gone out to Hollywood to make it big. Um, but he was one of several people that I spoke to. I think there's probably 15 total that sort of live in between the longer essays of the book. And I did these sort of deep interviews with them and then condensed their talking into a kind of monologue. Uh, I realized when I was making the book, you can't make a book on the voice and have the only voice in the book be your own. So I really wanted mm-hmm. these other speakers. Yeah. Um, and it was great fun. Uh, there's an Elvis impersonator in there. Um, there's a, a, a man who has, uh, like a rock singer who had major vocal surgery. A woman who screamed at the Beatles concert in 1964. She was one of the few people to see the Beatles when they were doing that tour in 1964. Uh, an American Idol auditioner. Uh, the Impressionist is uh, a very famous Impressionist. I think he was uh, actually on America's Got Talent, but long before that, you, you see him in tons of movies and films. He's he's excellent. Um, his name is Jim Mc. Oh, oh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I had it here. I'll I'll look it up. Um, Meskimen, Jim Jim Meskimen okay. is yeah. his name. Jim Meskimen. Uh, it's interesting to to think about when when you hear people to do voice work like like you did and and. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm thinking of the the famous guy who who does a lot of the uh, the trailers for movies, mm-hmm. the the in a world guy, you know. Yeah, in a uh, world. In a yeah. world, that's right. <laughs> um, you, you there's there's a fame there. There's an there's an interesting, I guess, element of of when you can only hear the voice. You you, you don't you don't have any other cues about the person. All you hear is the voice, and I don't know. It enhances it somehow. Oh yeah, there's a. And I, I'm fascinated by people who. Somebody said this to me once when I was back in the voiceover scene that there's a row of really fancy houses in the Hamptons, uh, made you know that that have completely been funded by people whose voices you know so very well that they're famous. They're the vocal Meryl Streep's, but you know they can walk down the street undetected every day, which I thought was always super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and you become kind of a magpie. Uh, when you start paying attention to voices like that, Tom, it sounds like you might be like this too, where you, you, you hear that voice and you go, oh, that's the guy from, from this thing or from this thing. You sort of begin sort of vocally recognizing those superstars. Yeah, I think maybe, maybe when you're in radio, you, you, you pay attention a little more to the voice. And, and, uh, and uh, so you, you start to pay attention. And, and other people, you don't have to be in radio to do this, but you pay attention to, to the differences. And, and uh, right. And 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 the skill, the talent, 
You know, that just did you happen it. to see the film that came out last year that Lake Bell made called In a World? And I, I didn't. I missed that one. <laughs> it's on Netflix right now. Uh, it's terrific. It's about it's kind of like a rocky kind of tri- triumph of the underdog story about mm-hmm. it's a it's 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 narrative. It's a, a fictional story of a woman trying to be the first kind of there's like three major disaster movie announcers in a world. Like three, right. And they're all men. And so she plays this woman who's trying to break in and be a sort of um you know, top level blockbuster uh, trailer voiceover artist, and it's it's very funny. I'll very, have to check. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, there, there's a there's yeah. a real art to it. Uh, also, you know, we're on election day here. There, there's a real art to um, to to campaign voiceovers as well. You, you, you oh yeah, yeah. It. I like the ones where um, they're just that really high emotional rhetoric. Where you know it's like Elena Passarello says she's tough on crime. That's Just right. that really sarcastic, yes. like the old Saturday yeah. Live. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, you who's try. that guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that, there's a real art to that. Trying to make the opponent sound, you know, as bad as possible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a niche. Like he's the he's the guy that they call when you need that just like like annoyingly sarcastic yeah. voice for political ads. He's made that name for himself. And then you wonder if he's like that at the breakfast table, you know. But right. Uh, right. my wife said she cooked this bacon, <laughs> but I'm not sure. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it, 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 it's probably not true, but we like to think it would be true, you know, that yeah, that, yeah. that she's yeah. that he's, he's like a very that. Nice man. Yeah. Uh so I want to get to um Talking about your your uh, you're the winner, I think 2011 winner of the uh, Stella contest. We're talking about the famous, um, you know, yell from Marlon Brando. So uh, first, I wonder if you could take us through Marlon Brando's. You deconstruct this; it's it's fascinating. Uh, his uh, Stella, I can't even reproduce it. Um, and and then take us to the contest. Well, I I I see the Stella scream as the pinnacle of 20th century American vocal culture. It's just, I think it's beautiful. I love watching, you know, it's a very YouTubeable clip. Uh, I love watching him making that sound, standing at the bottom of that balcony, waiting for Stella, you know, just, it's just, just like, it's like he's been pricked by a porcupine or something. He's just in so much pain, <laughs> quills all over him. And then um, he yells that beautiful Stella and she comes down the stairs and it works. So this guy has just done this terrible thing and he makes the sound with his voice and it works. Uh, so I just, I love it. I love the way that Brando has done, has done it. And you know what else I love about it is the sort of mimetic properties of the Stella scream. Um, it's, it's, just we've, we've used it in so many different things, right? I, I, I've seen it on The Simpsons. I've seen it on The Gilmore Girls. I've seen it in an, a really cool episode of Saturday Night Live where um, the older dad from Everybody Loves Raymond, Peter... Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle yes. and John Belushi do dueling brandos. Uh, it's in an episode of Seinfeld, right? And there's to the point where, like, my nephew, when he was four, was, like, crying <laughs> crocodile tears at the dinner table, and we were like, oh, Stella, Stella! And he just immediately started yelling it back at us. There's something about it that is very fun to reproduce. So when I heard there was a contest in which you got to reproduce the Stella, and it was in New Orleans during a particularly gray time of the year when I needed a vacation... I uh, I thought maybe I would go down there and try to. Uh, I, I figured I would lose, and then I would write one of these really great George Plimpton essays about losing the Stella screen right. contest, <laughs> you know. But um, then I, I, you know, I just I don't know what happened. It's it's New Orleans, so there was quite a bit of bourbon involved. Um, <laughs> you know, I I just went down there and. Um, 
tried to I don't know. I just, I just it, you watch everyone else doing it, sort of standing under this balcony and yelling at Stanley and uh, yelling at Stella, and um, the women were supposed to yell at Stanley, and you just heard them opening up their throats, and you just became, you become so jealous, you know. As an adult, you never hear people yelling that loud. Like maybe Scottie Pippen when he won like a major basketball championship or something. I don't know, but I just, I just became so jealous that I just really wanted to lay it all out there. And I did, and I couldn't speak for about three days afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and you and you won. You did. I did. I won. Yeah, I, um, I did, and, and it, it made writing the essay a little more difficult, I think, because the, going to a point where you win, sort of, you know, I think the loser story is a little more interesting for people. Yeah. But um, yeah, I did. I the first round was outside in Jackson Square, and then the second round was inside. It was in a theater, and there's something about a theater that I sort of knew how to play with more, so I think that helped. Um, and then somebody was up in the balcony recording the screams, and uh, uh, they put it on YouTube. And so, you know, I, they, the winning scream was on YouTube, and then I went back. I was in Michigan teaching at the time, and I went back and walked into my teaching class two days later, and my students had found it. <laughs> and so I walk in, and on their phones, they're playing the sound of me making this terrible, terrible scream, um, just giggling in their seats, which was Quite humbling, I have to say. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you what they thought, so they they they, they found it amusing. Yeah, I think I they thought. I think they just knew that it would make me really embarrassed. Yeah. Um, but they uh, they thought one of my colleagues, I think, had let. It was very excited about it, and then let them know, and they were just like, "Well, this is going to be one great way to derail the class." So yeah. <laughs> yeah. They sort of threw it out there. So as you heard here, you can you can find this on YouTube. It's it's quite it's quite the deal. Um, Elena Passarello is my guest for the hour. Her book is "Let Me Clear My Throat." It's essays on on the voice, on vocal expression, uh, and uh, she's coming to Utah for a couple of appearances. The first of those will be at uh, Southern Utah University in Cedar City. That's on Thursday, eleven thirty a.m. in the Sterling Church Auditorium of the Student Center. There, that's part of the Art of the Literature series, and it's part of Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. Then on Friday at noon. She She'll be at Brigham Young University uh, as a part of the English Department's reading series. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495. Maybe you'd like to give us your best, Stella. 1-800-826-1495. You can uh, join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio and uh, on email, upraxis at gmail.com. So, Alina Passarello, uh, you talk a lot about the variations on and, and I guess, the importance of the scream and you have various examples, um, but you say first of all, I guess, uh, primitive man. Uh, this and it's still to this day, it's a, it is a good attention getter. When one of our fellow humans screams, we we stop what we're doing. Uh, but but earliest forms, you could you could tell by the type of scream. Uh, maybe what animal is eating your fellow, and and where he's eating. <laughs> it. it's, there's a lot of information in a scream. Yeah, it's funny. This, you know, these are sort of theories, but it sort of goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, where you, you, we use our whole body to make sounds, and people theorize that you're able to hear the parts of your body that are ailing when you make a noise. Um, it, there's, it's a, a reason why when someone has hurt themselves at like the Scala or is having some kind of a digestive medical issue, they will let them off because they think that uh, it affects their tone. So therefore, when you were, before, you could, before humans could speak, when we were just kind of screaming, right, and not using our voice to make language per se, when we were roaring like lions, um, 
we think that you would be able to give a physical report with every scream you made. Uh, so, and then there's, there's, there's a, an interesting study about this where somebody, uh, like an anthropologist uh, who works in one of the universities in California, um, he, he uh, went to Papua New Guinea or someplace like that and asked people to scream and imagine that their baby was in peril or that they were being bitten by an alligator or uh, that different things were happened, happening to them. And then he recorded all those screams and went back to California and played them for his students. And the students could identify the type of peril that the screamers were pretending to be in with an accuracy rate of like something crazy, like 70%. Um, so some people think that that report, the, that idea of the physical report is sort of uh, still part of us. Other people think it's just, you know, a stool pigeon for something else that's happening. Mm. And I guess the, the scream, it, it's so attention getting because it is primal. It's, uh, we all understand what it, what it, what it, you know, that it, it is urgent. Mm-hmm. Um, you, yeah. you've, you've been, but, and I think it represents usually on the stage or in film, it represents that. You've been hired to, to scream, right? Before you were, at least in one production, you were hired to do a scream. Yeah, and you know, when we scream, most, I think most actors have to do some kind of screaming at some point. Um, I, mean, I don't know, most, maybe. And uh, uh, usually when you do a scream on stage, you have to work very hard to protect your voice. You don't necessarily do a full-on scream that engages the false vocal cords at the back of your throat, the classic scream that would send someone running where we all cavemen back in the day. There's usually more protective ways to do it. Um, I had to do one, uh, I had to do quite a few now that I think about it. Um, yeah, uh, but it's, it's, but when you do it, you kind of have to take better care of your voice than I did at like mm-hmm. the Stella contest or something like that. It's interesting. You juxtapose in the book. Uh, you you have a, a friend who's who's an actor. He was. Uh, and you talk about him preparing to do a, a scream. He has to he has to save his vocal cords. Then at a certain point, he screamed in real life when his house burned down. That's right. Um, it was one of the strangest things that ever happened to me. I mean, it happened to him, but I was close by. Um, you know, all vocal actors have their ways of preparing to make these sounds. They, you know, drink hot tea, or they must have warm restaurant-quality lemonade, or they do deep knee bends. And he had this kind of very sort of heavy warm-up for which he prepared for his theatrical scream. And then um, he was staying in this house that caught on fire, and we were close by, and we ran to watch him, and he had just just ripped his voice raw, screaming, trying to get his family out of the house. Um, and it was really interesting. You know, this is, this is when you know that you should probably write a book about the voice because we were all rushing to help him, but I couldn't help um, but just sort of wonder what it must have sounded like having just heard his theatrical scream, how different it must have sounded when he was screaming from a natural place. I remember that thought popping into my head when we were, you know, rushing around and <laughs> trying to find... Uh, things to help him, like, you know, blankets and transportation and stuff. Have you talked to him about that? Or you can speculate of, you have the fake scream. I guess you have to get yourself to a, um, maybe a certain emotional place. I don't know. Or maybe you can just physically just do the scream and, and juxtapose that with, you know, your house is burning down. You, you scream. It's natural scream. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no prep and that's what it was supposed to be. You know, the scream is like, uh, I think in the book, I, I, I say it's like a, there's like a glass case around it, like in case of emergency, break glass. The fact that you're, it's the sound of your body hurting itself. And 
So you hear that sound and you go, there's another human that's hurting themselves. I need to run toward it. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's, Contract, you're contractually bound to damage yourself focally to do, if you if you actually have an occasion to do a scream of primal peril. Yeah, you you talk about Howard Dean. This is another. Uh, this is where we at least we think we can tell things about a person based on on just a wordless vocalization. And this this is famous, of course. We all know this uh, Howard Dean, the Democratic Party frontrunner. I forget what year it was. He he was he was the uh, favorite in Iowa. Came in third, and and this was a speech I think after that. And um, at the end of that, he he just this awkward, uh, uncomfortable, I don't know, <laughs> scream. And that uh, you point out in the book that he was already start dropping the polls, but that certainly hastened his his exit from that race. Right. I was really surprised to learn when I started writing this uh, that essay, um, which was one of my favorite essays to write, uh, that people don't like to hear that that scream had anything to do with him losing. Like the Deanyites sort of think that that's uh, – that thinking about that, – that, you know, that's the sort of common understanding, and that, that really riles them up. <laughs> I got a lot of letters uh, about making that argument. But, it, you know, that's what we wanted to believe when we heard that scream in January 2004 – that he was he made that terrible sound and there was something in that voice and something in that physical report that let us know that he was unfit to be president. Mm-hmm. Um, really, that's not exactly what happened. He was kind of his career was kind of in the tank before he start started or before he made the noise. But God, I love that sound. I love and I love what happened after people heard it. It was mm-hmm. you know before YouTube, the sort of early days of the spread of viral memes and it was just everywhere. That scream that he made. Um, was so overused on national networks that all three national networks issued apologies to the Dean campaign for oversaturating their broadcasts with it. It's just, there's some, I mean, we just went crazy for that sound, you know? It was as big as Stella. And I just love that sort of rock star. He became this kind of rock star, you know, and I, lo- I love that part of the story. Uh, do, what, do you remember what you thought about when you heard that scream? I, I was uncomfortable. I was yeah. <laughs> I was uncomfortable, and I I don't know, and I, I it was negative for me. It, it had negative connotation for me, and I and I thought, uh, man, this guy's a little out of control. But on the other hand, if you're in the if you're Howard Dean, uh, I don't know what he was thinking in the in the very moment. Uh, I think it was yeah. just pent up pent up nervous energy was part of it. Oh yeah, and you know you look you know you look at what he was doing with his body, and you know the the thing I love, I you know I started looking into how voices are used in political campaigns. I tried to find as much information as I could, and there's it's just terrible for your voice. The the caucus season, you know, you're in these overheated rooms. It's the coldest season of the year. You're going from New Hampshire to Iowa. Bill Clinton. Um, you know, had to sit in steam baths like half the time he was campaigning. He sort of had that notoriously gravelly voice. Um, They just wrecked their voices. Bill Clinton's voice was so bad that he used to hum in elevators. Every time he was in an elevator, he and his staff would just hum to sort of keep his vocal register warm. And there was another guy, a California guy in the 80s, who dropped out of the primaries because of vocal damage. Uh, It was the year, I think it was 84, was it, it was either 80 or 84, um, but he uh, he hurt his voice so badly, and then he had to have surgery. He couldn't campaign anymore. Hmm. And then, of course, we know there's sort of a, these famous reports of Lincoln's voice when he was on the stump. 
being kind of high and reedy and and very different from like what we would assume the sort of Jason Robards uh, Abraham Lincoln. Although Daniel Day Lewis, I think, did try to sort of capture Lincoln's reedier campaign voice in the the most recent Lincoln. And I think but, it's. You know, think, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, it is interesting that we. I, I think we want Lincoln's voice to be lower. You know, Jason Robards. Right. Yeah, that's that's Looking super back. interesting, isn't yeah. it? That there's we've just decided that the our sort of our president with the most gravitas must have the deepest voice. Right. It's a whole another conversation. <laughs> so so this Howard Dean you you thought about this, you wrote about this. Um Howard Dean I, I don't know I maybe it says much more about us than it does about him that that we this this is wordless vocalization and uh, and we as, we ascribed at the time and still do a whole host of meanings to it absolutely i, I mean I, I believe that 100 percent. and you know to the point where if you go back to that ballroom where he made that noise the songs that were playing right before he took the stage the sort of campaign rally songs were all these rock songs with screams in them with terrible noises you know um uh Baba, or, I don't know if it was uh, Baba O'Reilly, Teenage Wasteland, or if it was Won't Get Fooled Again, but it was one of those Who songs with those big, huge Roger Daltrey screams in there played right before he took the stage. So we're in this room where we have decided that screaming is really a, important to getting us riled up. And then when the candidate screams, we're like, uh-uh, no. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting point. You, you talk, in the same essay, you talk about Robert Plant. A famous right. screamer. Howard, Howard Dean is the same age, or he was born in the same year as Ozzy Osbourne, Alice Cooper, Stephen Tyler from Aerosmith, and I, who I think, and a man who I think is the greatest rock screamer uh, outside of the blues, of course, Robert Plant. And so, and the note that Dean hits at the top of his Dean scream is the same note that. Uh, um, Robert Plant screams at the end of the song Communication Breakdown. They sound very similar. You know, Dean sort of goes, ah, and Robert Plant goes, ah, what? It sort of sounds like the same song, the same note. And I just think that's so amazing that these two men that are the exact same age are hitting the same note. And for one of them, it makes him this kind of genius of rock. And for another one, it's a popular perception is that it's this sort of campaign suicide. Yeah. Um, I want to, uh, before we close, we have uh, oh, about six or seven minutes left in, in the conversation. Uh, I was absolutely fascinated with your, uh, your, your taking readers through what's known as the Wilhelm scream. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, and and uh, it, it, I didn't know that that was the name, and our listeners undoubtedly along with me have, have experienced this, even though you didn't know the name. Tell us a little bit about this. So when you, you when you first heard or when you first heard about the Wilhelm scream and then you heard the sound clip, you thought, oh, I've heard that a million times before. Yeah, yeah, true? yes, definitely. <sighs> See, that's great. Uh, the Wilhelm scream is a sound bite that's been used in well over 300 movies. They know it was recorded, uh, I think, in 1951, which was the same year as the Brando streetcar named Desire, Stella Yell, and. Um, uh, Nobody knows who made it, but it's a scream that was originally used for a film called Distant Drums of a man being eaten by an alligator. And it's just this crazy noise that throughout films in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, sound designers would sort of uh, either use it as a scream or bury it in the foley of different things as a kind of sonic joke. So if you listen really closely, you can hear a Wilhelm scream in every one of the Star Wars movies, 
nearly every Quentin Tarantino movie, A Star is Born with Judy Garland, Kung Fu Panda, Toy Story. He's just, it's just the sound is, it's just everywhere. And I love the fact that nobody knows who made this crazy sound. There's a theory that it was um, Cheb Woolley, the guy who wrote and sang the song One-Eyed, One-Horn, Flying Purple People Eater, but I never got a confirmation of that when I was looking around. So this originated some voice actor in a studio somewhere. Uh-huh. Right. Did, did this sound originally to, what, a man being eaten, man being shot by an arrow? Yeah, for, it was for a distant drums. He was getting eaten by an alligator. Eaten by, eaten so by an alligator. And then it was used yeah. by a guy being shot by the Indians. And uh, you theorize that this is sound men sort of having some fun, uh, seeing, at least originally, seeing how many uh, different situations they could put the same sound in. Yeah, there was a time where you would uh, sound designers would have no Wilhelm clauses in their contracts <laughs> when they would get a job because it was just the tomfoolery was so rampant. People didn't want uh, the, their movies to be ruined by a sound designer sort of uh, putting this little joke into the film. But now, of course, it's got this major cult following, so people are using it left and right. You know, uh, the TV show community puts a Wilhelm scream, Wilhelm scream in almost every episode. They do, really? Like a, yeah, like I think a hedgehog died the other day to the, to the Wilhelm scream in community. They, they just, they're really gratuitous about it. You hear it in commercials now, um, like car commercials and things. I love, I love the Wilhelm scream. I, yeah. I just think it's, uh, it's so strange that we've made this 50-year uh, sonic joke uh, out of the sound that is a man pretending to be dying, the, mm-hmm. the sort of vertigo of that choice and, and the irony maybe that's present there is, is really fascinating to me. Maybe the most tragic um, use of the Wilhelm screen is, is in A Star is Born. Right? It's not, you would think that they'd use it uh, when James Mason is, is dying, but of course he drowns himself. It's silent. Um, but they use it with Julie Garland. Right, yeah, they use it as a kind of like, they needed like a goofy Halloween sound. There's a, a moment in a musical number where Judy Garland is sort of dancing around to this record on the hi-fi, and it's got all of these various sounds. There's like sound, like salsa music sounds and French cabaret sounds with accordions, and then there's just this section that has all these spooky sounds, and, you know, the song is sort of changing with each sonic profile that she goes through. And for the spooky music part... Um, the, the Wilhelm scream is there. And it's a really interesting moment in film history, uh, some people think, because that scream appears in silence. So in all of, most of the other films that happen before it, the Wilhelm scream happens when there's sounds of gunshots going around or hoofbeats or, you know, just sort of other sort of foley present. But because Judy Garland is sort of dancing around and then she strikes a pose and in silence you hear the Wilhelm scream, it's likely that um, the bite was pirated from that clip and used in other films so that we took the Wilhelm scream, you know, the studios that did not have access to the actual sort of clip of the Wilhelm, this is pre-digital, of course, they sort of pirated the bite from A Star is Born. Uh, this, is, this is just sort of a, a loose theory that I, I read about and, and sort of jumped on, that we hear the Judy Garland Wilhelm scream in several movies that happened in the 70s and 80s. Which is really interesting because Judy Garland herself was kind of, you know, always on the verge of major illness and major peril, right? Yeah, she was, in a sense, you know, slowly dying as, as we went along with all the, all the drug use and everything. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I'd like to end with where you end the book. Uh, this is a very interesting idea. Um, you have a, ventri- uh, a ventriloquist dummy. Mm-hmm. 
uh, taking a personality test. So th- this this takes another aspect of the voice, right? That a a, uh, a dummy doesn't have a voice of his own, and uh, you're you're giving him a personality test. Right. Yeah. It was it was definitely not. It was sort of one of the wilder impulses in the book, and I think it's a little bit of a head scratcher from a lot of different people's perspectives. I was trying to figure out a way to end the book. I didn't want to end it on some kind of statement on my part. You know, I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to take some kind of bow, some kind of rhetorical bow at the end of the book. So I knew I needed to talk to someone else, just like I did with those monologues. And so, and I'm obsessed with ventriloquism because it's so interesting. It's this wonderful blend of singing and magic, right? Uh, so I found a ventriloquist uh, who agreed, and this was not easy. Ventriloquists hold their dummy relationship. They don't call them dummies. They're figures. Their relationship. Oh, okay. Figures. figures. All right. Yes, very. Yeah, you do not call them a dummy. Even that's, I learned that um, very seriously, right? So um, it was hard to find somebody who would take a quiz from the persona of their figure, from their dummy. Uh, but finally, I found this really cool performance artist named T. Foley, who she and I just sort of talked a lot before about what I wanted to do. And um, uh, I sent her the quiz, and she just answered it beautifully, and we sort of honed our answers together. And so that last essay is really a, a real collaboration with a very game, very kind uh, ventriloquist artist. We uh, will end it there. We're out of time. Uh, the book is Let Me Clear My Throat. It's a book of essays. Elena Passarello is uh, the author. Uh, she is uh, currently assistant professor of English at Oregon State University. Uh, she's coming to Utah for a couple of events. Uh, she'll be at uh, Cedar City for Southern Utah University's Art of Literature series. That's also part of the uh, uh, Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. That is 11.30 a.m. on Thursday. Then on Friday at noon, she'll be at Brigham Young University as part of the English Department's reading series. Elena Passarello, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, it was such a pleasure, Tom. I can't wait to get to Utah. Thanks for talking to me. And uh, join us tonight beginning at 7 o'clock for our election night coverage. And then tomorrow on Access Utah, we'll be recapping the election here on, on Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. The 2014 midterm elections are today. In case you're still making up your mind on how to vote, UPR's Travis Johnson brings us a highlight of where the candidates stand on some of Utah's hottest issues. Public lands management is a hot issue in Utah in this year's election. First District incumbent Republican Rob Bishop believes Utah's public lands should be managed by Utahns. Utah is a public land state, always has been, always will be. The issue is not whether we should be a public land state. The issue is simply who is going to make the decisions on how those public lands are used. And that should be the people who live in the area where those public lands are. His opponent, Democratic challenger Donna McLear, sees Utah's legal claim to the lands as faulty. It's a historical fallacy and myth to think that these lands were owned by Utah. They never were. And so when we have a debate about this, we really have to start from understanding the law and the policy. These lands in the Enabling Act were given to the federal government and Utah forever disclaimed the right to those lands. Second District incumbent Republican Chris Stewart doesn't believe national parks should be turned over to the state, but echoes similar views to Bishop. There is this presumption that people in Washington, D.C. care more about Utah than we do. Let us manage these lands. I could show you bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. who are making decisions about Utah who have never set foot in our state. 
The Democrat challenging Stewart, Luz Robles, sees a need to protect public lands from development, tying it to Utah's economic interest. Our number one revenue maker when it comes to the state is tourism, is the outdoors industry, and all the employment that it brings to the state of Utah will be very concerned if we privatize that or just send it to the state where we don't have the resources to take care of them currently. Immigration reform is another hotly contested issue in this year's election. The Democratic challenger for Jason Chaffetz's third district seat, Brian Wanaka, believes a broad approach to immigration is necessary, and securing the border is not a quick fix for immigration issues. There are border problems. I'm not sure that increasing border security will really accomplish what we want to do as far as general immigration reform. The incumbent for the 3rd District, Republican Jason Chaffetz, has said he would support a pathway to citizenship, but only if it is constructed without granting a free pass to citizenship. Chaffetz has broken from the rhetoric of other Utah Republicans who prioritize securing the border. There should be a pathway to citizenship, not a special pathway, and not no pathway, but there has to be a legal, lawful way to go through this process that works. And right now it doesn't. Mia Love, the Republican contesting the 4th District seat occupied by the retiring Jim Matheson, says securing the border is a first priority, along with accounting for the flow of people in and out of the country. We also have to track people, not, not just people who are going, coming into the country, but also people who are leaving the country, so that we know effectively exactly what we're dealing with. How about a system that allows people to pay a small fee to come into the country, and then they get the majority of that fee back? The other contender for the 4th District, Democrat Doug Owens, believes in order to create good citizens, the undocumented immigrants already here must be given a pathway to citizenship, and comprehensive legislation is the best way of achieving this. We do have an issue with 11.5 million undocumented people. We're beginning to have the makings of an underclass in our society. That's not the American way to have that. It hurts our economy because they can't be full participants in it. They can't access education the way I would like them to. I would favor a system that allows people to pay a fine get square with the law and in appropriate cases have a pathway to citizenship. With Utah Public Radio, this is Travis Johnson. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members in Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, featuring savory European-style breakfast treats, such as quiches and a revolving menu of lunch sandwiches, such as artichoke basil and fresh mozzarella. Information at crumbbrothers.com. Did you know that despite their inherent challenges, remarriages can be rewarding? Studies of remarried couples suggest effective communication, financial, parenting, and conflict management strategies can facilitate satisfying and enduring relationships. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM HD1 Logan.